Moth Sanctuary Productions presents The Outsider, a Penny Dreadful novella, written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman. Part 4, The Emissary. I dreamed, ecstatic dreams that rose up ever higher until they transcended the sky. Dreams that soar above it all. The swirl of an endless typhoon surrounded me, but I remained at its center, still and calm. Time was gone. So was the ocean and the animals and the world on which we stood. Ageless tendrils of mist stretched out into an unfathomable nothingness that was filled with living shadows. I was the center. I was the storm. I was everything. And all was oblivion. The world when I woke seemed a different place. Quiet. Still. Pregnant with possibility. There was a part of me that half expected to find myself back at the Abbey, or somewhere else just as alien. But I was still in the room, barely having moved from the spot where I had fallen. My body was heavy, sluggish, and it weighed me down like an anchor. The manic thoughts and hysteria that had hounded me before was gone. It was as if I had reached the limit of what mental, physical and emotional turmoils a person could endure, and simply moved past them, beyond fear, to an altogether other state. I felt blank but present, acutely aware of my environment, but unwilling to engage with it. It was late, almost nightfall. I dressed myself quickly. Having lost most of the day, it hardly seemed worthwhile. But that sense of anticipation wouldn't leave me alone, and I wanted to be prepared. For the same reason, I moved to lock my door, chastising myself for not taking the precaution when I first arrived back. But to my surprise, the key was missing. I quietly crouched to peek through the hole and see if I had left it in the lock on the outside but there was nothing. I thought back over the night before and could remember locking my door before I went to bed for fear of my doing something not within my control toward Eliza Jane, but I distinctly recalled leaving it in the lock. A part of me wondered if I took it with me to the Abbey during my sleepwalk or dropped it along the way. But no, when I got home this morning, I hit my head on it when I sat against the door. My hand absent-mindedly went to the bump on the back of my head as if to confirm that it really happened, which left only one possibility. Someone had taken it whilst I slept. I shuddered. My flesh crawled at the notion of someone stepping in here without my knowing, standing only feet away from my unguarded and undressed form, and I felt a unique sense of vulnerability I'd never encountered before. But why would anyone have wanted to take it? Not knowing how else to secure myself, I grabbed one of the chairs from the foot of the bed, hurried across the room and wedged it against the door. It looked flimsy and gave me little comfort. My attention was drawn to the window, and I saw the last traces of sunlight glitter across the eaves of the houses in the town. All was quiet throughout. Even the waves seemed subdued, as if waiting intently. At the top of the hill, I could see the lights of a large fire flickering against the silhouetted walls of that terrible abbey. Was it too much to hope that the ruin was burning down, 
taking that awful statue and the memory of my haunted night with it. Shadows of movement fluttered within, as if the fire were moving, dampening my hopes of its destruction. I watched it until the sun disappeared entirely and the evening had fully fallen. In that excited twilight, the flames glowed more violently. I sat on the bed and waited, unsure of what I was waiting for. As if to add to my discomfort, my stomach screamed out at me to feed it, and I wondered how long it had been since I had eaten. Before long, the flames started to move. A hideous trail of fire meandered its way through the churchyard, carried on torches by the remaining townspeople, with smoke billowing in their wake. There was the sound of raised voices, passionate yells and cries, like that of an army preparing for battle. Others sang. The perfect view out of my window became the ultimate vantage point from which I could watch the oncoming danger. I saw the group descend the steps into the town and eventually out of my sight. I knew they were headed this way. I wondered if there was anywhere else I could go, somewhere I could flee to or another building I could hide in, but I knew such efforts would be pointless. These people knew their town as intimately as they knew themselves, had lived here for generations without stepping foot outside of it, and with the sheer number of them looking, I knew that they would find me. They may even have been waiting for me downstairs at that moment, guarding the exits, so that even if I did try to leave the property, I could have run straight into their hands. My head buzzed with all the possibilities of what I could do, all of which only served to cause a tangle in my head. I needed a plan of some sort. I tried to settle myself and listen to my thoughts. One rang out clearer than the rest, rising above the miasma. You are the storm, it said. They should be afraid of you. It was startling how clearly the voice came, as if spoken by someone else with me in the room. I became aware of that feeling of being beyond fear once again, and how the deep-rooted nervousness I had felt for so long had gone. I wondered if this is what they meant by fearless, not an absence of fear, but an evolution into something beyond it, and in doing so, maybe becoming something to be feared. Whatever the approaching crowd's intentions were, I was not going to meet them unprepared. I scanned the room for something that I could defend myself with. There was a solid metal letter opener on the chest of drawers, which at first I thought may have proven useful, but was only a few inches long and dull. If I were to use this against them, they would have to be so close that it would almost be too pointless to try, and even then, the blade may not break the skin. Thinking I had nothing else of use available in the room, I decided to improvise with what I had. I wrapped my hand in a scarf, grabbed my book and used it to break one of the window panes. Long shards snapped off in pieces and I took one in my covered hand like a blade. Though fragile, it was longer and sharper than the letter opener, which may have given me more of a chance of inflicting some damage, no matter how minute, before anyone got too close. Whether I had any strength left within me to wield it adequately remained to be seen, but the thought of my even taking a hold of it would have been unfathomable only a few hours before, and I felt encouraged by that thought. Thinking it unwise to rely on just one weapon, and my already weakened body's ability to fight, I picked up the letter opener from the chest of drawers and placed it in the pocket of my skirt, secreting it away just in case the need for a more stealthy approach presented itself. The minutes flew by quicker than I could have believed. The sound of voices drew closer, and the flickering of their torches crept onto the street, just outside of my field of vision. 
I stood by the now broken window and watched as the group came into view outside the hotel and congregated before it. Several members of the party rushed up to the entrance and I heard the door downstairs crash open. I tried to calm my stuttering breaths as I heard them trampling up the carpeted stairs in a frantic hurry. I turned expectantly toward my door, the makeshift glass knife shaking in my hands as I pointed it ahead. Then the door burst open, sending a flurry of splinters into the room and breaking the useless chair into pieces. The group of men charged at me and I swung the glass at them in wild arches which they proceeded to evade effortlessly before grabbing my wrist and wresting it from me easily. It fell to the floor without having made even a scratch. Each of the men had a hand upon me and were pulling me toward them. I fought as much as I could but I was still too weak and there were so many of them. With one on each arm and another pulling on my hair, they dragged me from my room, unaffected by my attempts at resistance. A bolt of pain shot up from my ravaged feet as I tried to pull away, and I nearly slipped and fell down the stairs. Had I done so, they would have been happy to let me fall. We passed through the reception, and with the biggest force of effort yet, they thrust me out the front door and presented me to the throng. A rope was instantly and expertly thrown over my head by hands that had perfected the skill from years of experience of tying down ships, and it tightened around my neck, as if they were capturing a beast while hunting. The person holding the rope pulled it harshly, sending me crashing to the ground. A cheer rose up from those assembled. My vision swelled at the blur of people and lights before me. Once the men had me sufficiently restrained, everything gradually came into focus. I saw that there were about a hundred men and women gathered on the street, closely packed together, so that it was clear there would be no way for me to escape, even if I was able to break free of the men's grip and the bindings at my throat. There were some I recognised, including the old church groundskeeper Sullivan. At the head of the group was Eliza Jane. That familiar, calm expression on her face and the sweet little smile she always wore was still present, showing she had no concern for my distress. She turned to address the crowd. Settle, settle. She deserves an explanation. At her words, they fell into a hush, and one that felt charged and excitable. She looked back at me with soft, pitying eyes. She stepped closer, and to my surprise, I screamed at her not to touch me, with an unexpectedly animalistic tone. This slowed her for all of a second, before she resumed her approach and crouched beside me. I'm sorry you got involved in all this, I really am. You're a wonderful person. I've enjoyed getting to know you. But you must understand, you've been chosen, and there's nothing anyone can do now. Her voice was gentle, as if trying to draw a child out of a tantrum. Amid everything, what struck me was how genuine she sounded. Take solace, she continued. Thanks to you, a family here will stay whole for another year. Don't think that we're not grateful for that. In return, I want to tell you everything that's happening. I think you deserve as much. We were all a flutter about you from the moment your employer made your booking. It was just such an unusual occurrence that it felt like a sign. You came to us at a time when even locals are leaving. And please know that those folks who left are not a part of this. They don't know anything about what we have to do when they're away. And that suits us just fine. They leave because they are the good people like my husband and our priest. They simply want to go about their days, live their lives as normal, and not have to deal with anything unsavoury. And they should be allowed to do so. 
but when the time comes and those storm clouds start looming, they don't question or hesitate. Everything in town is made available for our disposal. They leave because they know what we do is crucial to our survival. At this time of year, no one should be in Wales Arch but us. She indicated the gathering behind her. We who have remained, we are the latest incarnation of an order which has maintained the existence of this town for centuries. It is us who do the awful but necessary things that need to be done in order to appease what is coming. She paused and her expression changed to one of uncertainty, as if she didn't quite know how to continue. She took a breath, steadied herself, looked into my bewildered face and just decided to say it. Our ancestors called them Situ, though some have called it other things. Whatever their real name is, they are the everlasting sea god that lurks in the ocean between us and the Arctic. For centuries, it is C2 that has given us their protection, in a far more real way than any other god could. She leaned in closer and looked directly in my eyes. Do you know what it's like to be so dependent on the sea for your survival? How vicious and cruel it can be. It eats children, devastates families. It can take you home. It can keep your nets empty and leave you penniless. But with C2's blessing, we are protected from those cruelties. It gives us food, keeps our waters safe for the local boats. We prosper because of them. But make no mistake, they don't do this from the kindness of their heart. They demand payment for these blessings. So our order exists to keep us in their favour. We provide them with the devotion they need and appease their appetites when needed. C2 proves themselves to us and we prove ourselves to them in return. They destroyed the abbey and all who lived there before, and gave it to us as a temple to them. So there was a reason this procession started in the abbey, I thought. That statue I saw was an idol for them to worship, an embodiment of their fictional god. And the light in the church I saw last night, might that have been these people too? They said they were given access to anywhere in town, and if they already had desecrated one religious site, why should they think twice about doing it to another? Each year the cycle starts anew, Eliza Jane continued. It begins with signs that they and their followers have returned to our waters. Fish, seals and birds will start turning up dead. The sea will become an unwelcome place where even fishermen won't be safe in. Sometimes people will even see their followers on land at night. Then the moment arrives and C2 shows us their destructive power by conjuring two nights of devastating storms that will ruin boats and homes and even kill anyone crazy enough to be out in it. And though these may seem great to us, they are merely a sliver of what C2 could unleash, because they do more than conjure the storm. For those who would dare to look, they will see our great sea god riding within the clouds. They gather above the abbey and look down on the town where they can best watch our undoing. If you listen hard enough, you'll hear that the rumble of thunder is simply their voice. I thought back to my dreams and what I saw the night of the tempest. What she was saying described both, though I knew it couldn't be true. These had merely been hallucinations from my condition, aggravated by homesickness and fear, weren't they? The prospect that any of the bizarre tales they were telling could be true was almost more terrifying than the mob itself, but the fact that they believed them to be meant I was in very real danger. 
On the third day, once C2 has shown us what they can do, we are given the chance to present an offering, and they will send their emissary to us to collect it. If we do, and C2 is pleased with what we have presented, the storms cease, and the sea becomes a safe, plentiful place for us once again. If we don't deliver, or if it is not the gift that they had chosen, the town will be washed away entirely. Usually our sacrifice would be someone selected from the town, meaning each year another of our families gets smaller and has to go through the pain of grieving. Did you know one of the local legends states that the sea was made by the tears of those of our people who had given up their loved ones? That's how many families have had to endure this burden. Entire lines have been wiped out. But this time, we've been given a mercy. We don't have to sacrifice one of our own. This time, we have an outsider. And C2 has made it clear that they desire you. I cried out my denial, but it was futile. We know they have. They have sent you the dreams. You remember what you told me? How you believed you were the storm? That is you seeing through C2's eyes. You've been riding the skies up there with them. You've felt their presence watching you at all times, because they have been watching. They even brought you to them last night. It was they who saw you to the Abbey. You are here because C2 willed it so. This kindness you are giving us will not go unrecognised. We will place symbols of you in all our places of remembrance. She pulled away from my aghast expression and turned once again to the crowd, head held low and hands clasped before her. There was a moment when all fell quiet and still. All right, she said softly, and that charged silence was suddenly broken in a flurry of activity. I screamed in response and once more attempted to fight my way free, but a sharp tug on the rope around my neck jerked me back the other way and face down onto the floor. Before I even knew what had happened, I was already being swept up again and dragged away. We followed the seemingly endless winding roads all the way down into the town until I felt the sea breeze upon my face signifying our arrival at the beach. We started moving down a steep but even incline which caused my feet to slip out from under me before we hit the bottom and the hard path gave way to sand. Around me I could see people stabbing their torches into the ground, lighting a pathway to the water before the crowd dispersed into small groups on either side, with myself and the men holding me in the centre between them, exposed to the water and the open mouth of the harbour immediately ahead. That reverent hush fell over them once again, which only served to make my ragged breaths and frustrated cries even louder. Every one of them had their gaze fixed out to sea, watching for something. No matter what I tried to do, I couldn't break their attention away from the water. No one paid a mind to me, except for when the man holding the rope a sailor, from the looks of him, would stop to yank on it whenever I was getting too animated. On the last pull, my neck jerked to the side with such violence that my voice caught in my throat and all the strength I had left in me evaporated. I couldn't even bear to raise my head or utter another sound. I was as quiet as the rest of them, biding my time to regain some level of vigour while they waited for whatever imagined sign they were waiting for. A few more minutes passed before a low voice cried out, There! The man pointed in a vague direction out to the water, and I turned my head slowly with effort 
to see what he was calling their attention to. Excited murmurs rose up from the others. It took a while before my eyes adjusted to the dark and could discern what lay amongst the ripples. But when I saw it, my eyes widened in horror. A form slinked quietly and slowly through the water, its head just visible above the surface. Even from here, in the combined glow of moonlight and torches, I could tell that whatever it was, it wasn't human. I screamed and tried to run away, but the men held me just as firmly in place. Closer and closer, the figure edged, and now I could see the slight movement of its feet as it entered shallower water. I didn't want to look at it. I couldn't fathom what I was seeing, but the more I fought to turn away, the more my feet sank into the sand. The creature struck sounding and began to rise out of the water. There was no mistaking now that it was the creature I had seen in the graveyard on the first night. It stood at what must have been around eight feet tall, and its scaly skin was a sickening blue-green hue. Its arms, legs and hands were long and supple, but its massive head was that of some fish-like creature. Long needle teeth protruded from its lips, the same teeth I had seen on the wall at the hotel. The webbed fingers came to sharp points, similar to claws at the tips, and I recalled the long gouges in the columns of the pier that I'd noticed the morning before. There had been signs of it all around us, since the very moment I arrived, almost as if they had been making no effort to hide. But why would they? Everyone left in the town knew about them. What was the point in hiding? It walked out of the water and onto the beach, where it strolled up the shore and stood looming before me. I shrank before it. Its eyes were cold and deep, indifferent, unfeeling, an ocean of their own. I felt the last strains of my sanity disappear under its gaze. Emissary, Eliza Jane said, her voice trembling with awe. C2 has chosen this outsider for their offering. In accordance with our ancient agreement, we present her to you as a gift that C2 may favour us for another year. If the creature could comprehend what she was saying, it gave no indication. It merely continued to stare with its pupilless eyes as if studying me. I feebly made a sort of noise that should have been words of protest, and the creature turned its head in what seemed to be curiosity. Then the creature lumbered forwards, and the men who had been grabbing my arms released me. Had I had more time, and if it hadn't been for the rope around my neck, I would have run. But just as soon as the men had let go, the creature's cold, wet hands had taken their place. Its grip was stronger and tighter than the combined efforts of the two men. I found my voice once again, and I screamed in desperation. I kicked and fought against the monster, but it had no effect. It dragged me as if I were nothing, turning its back on the reverent crowd. Waves lapped over my shoes and rose up my ankles as it brought me further into the water. My panic reached new heights. My cries ricocheted off of the cliffs on both sides until a single cheer rang out from the crowd, drowning out my pleas. The water was up to my chest and cold enough to steal the breath from my lungs, but the creature showed no sign of slowing down, no matter how much I struck it. I was not willing to say goodbye to the surface. I pleaded and raged against my fate, but knew this would be the last time I would see dry land. When the creature decided we were out far enough, it dove under, dragging me down with it, and every sound I made, and would ever make again, was swallowed up by the sea. I had taken my last breath.
The Outsider, Part 4, The Emissary, was written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman, with music also by Andrew Bate. The Outsider is a five-part Penny Dreadful novella, produced by Moth Sanctuary Productions as part of Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. Subscribe and download all episodes of the series now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on other Moth Sanctuary shows, visit mothsanctuaryproductions.com.